Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Diana Rogers is here today. This is a good one. I'm excited. Diana Rogers is a registered dietitian. She's the host of the podcast, Sustainable Dish. And she's got a brand new project out that we're going to talk all about today. We're going to dive deep into it. It's fun. This new project is called Sacred Cow. It is both a book and a film that uh, brings up a lot of questions around meat. Should we even be eating meat at all? Can meat be part of a sustainable food system? You know, there's this whole push right now towards veganism and vegetarianism, meatless Mondays and, you know, things like that. And talking about meat production as a health issue, as an environmental issue. And Diana really looks into some of those issues and helps people make sense of all the different meat options that are out there. So, yeah, I saw the film Sacred Cow. It is really uh, well-researched. There's a lot of information in there, and it's a it's a big movie. She goes really all around the world to help tell this story. It's part of an important conversation. And, you know, I've been on this journey for probably better part of a decade now of trying to figure out just where my food comes from. And, and it's funny because it was a, a bit of a circuitous path to get there. So I just, before I talk to Diana, I want to tell you a little bit about my journey And it may help some of you. Who knows? You know, I first discovered sustainability as a concept, really, when I was at this old house and we did a project in Austin, Texas with this amazing builder, Bill Moore. This was back in 2007. And Bill was one of the people in Austin sort of leading the green building movement there. He was the type of guy that would go through our trash after lunch and pick out all the water bottles and all the soda cans and make sure they got recycled. And he just made use of everything. You know, it was really smart reuse of, you know, old flooring that that got repurposed into other parts of the house or, you know, reusing scrap lumber just all over the place, looking at the energy consumption of the home and the energy production of the home. It was a home that had solar panels. It had rainwater reclamation for outdoor irrigation There were just a lot of things that I had never really thought about in the building of this home when we were looking at it back in 2007. And we made about 10 trips to Texas back then. And so I got to see it up close and personal every week for a number of months. And it was funny, like, as you start looking at the small picture of sustainable housing and sustainable building practice, it's very easy to go down that rabbit hole very quickly But it's also very easy to zoom out and just say, well, wait a second. If it's important for housing to be sustainable, shouldn't it be important for food to be sustainable, for clothing to be sustainable, for the car that I drive, for the electronics that I use? You know, it it really caused me, this is back in 07, 08, to really look at everything in my life and just try to find more environmentally sound ways of really doing everything. There was a period in my life where I was driving about two hours round trip every week out to a raw milk farm in central Massachusetts to buy raw milk, which is unpasteurized milk. And uh, it's very heavily regulated. It's not something you can usually get in a store. It varies state by state. And, you know, but here in Massachusetts, there's, I think, something like 12 or 15. It's a very small handful of farms that are approved to sell raw milk direct to consumers. So I used to go out to one of those and... Uh, buy my milk. And then we discovered organic produce farms closer to home, organic meat farms. And now, and you'll hear me talk about this with Diana, I have the CSA membership, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about that on the show before, where I go once a week to a local farm and get vegetables that they have harvested out of their barn. And then I get to go out in the fields and pick whatever's picking that week. Like, I am fully into this. And I talked a lot about this with Lydia Bastianich, if you heard that interview. And uh, it's made me healthier than I've ever been. It's made me certainly more conscious of food waste and the quality and taste of food. But I am a big believer in a lot of the things Diana's is talking about. You know, it's funny the way that we got connected. Uh, the film Sacred Cow is actually narrated by Nick Offerman. And, you know, I've had him on the show before and, you know, Uh, I've worked with him a number of times over the years. So Nick had posted on his Instagram over the summer about this film. And when I saw his post, I was like, oh, wow, this is exactly the kind of movie that I'd be into. Can we eat meat? 
Should we eat meat? If we do eat meat, how do we do it sustainably? What are the health benefits of eating meat? Is this the way that humans have evolved? Like all of it was just right up my alley. And so I reached out to, to Nick's team and said, hey, I know Nick's a part of uh, this documentary. I'd love to talk to the filmmaker. Do you think you could introduce me? So I got introduced to Diana through Nick's people. And basically, turns out when we started exchanging messages that we know a lot of the same people. And she actually lives like two towns away from me and uh, was affiliated with my CSA for a long time, actually. So I I hadn't met her before. I didn't know her name at all. And I hadn't heard of the film in any way. But it was just kind of funny that two people that are, you know, two towns apart here in Massachusetts, uh, the connection happened through someone in California who was just, you know, involved with her work as well. So it's just kind of funny when all those pieces and parts line up. But I'm glad I was able to get the introduction to Diana. And uh, yeah, this is a, it's a conversation that I really enjoyed having. And I hope it's one that you will find enlightening. For more info on Sacred Cow, check out sacredcow.info. There's information there about streaming the movie and uh, about the book. All right, here it is, my conversation with Diana Rogers. Let, let's just start with the basics, I guess. How has this quarantine been for you? How's the last you know six, seven months treated you? Well, luckily for the project that I was working on, we were done with all of our filming. Thank gosh, because, you know, there's no way we would be able to facilitate any other shoots. And and so we were able to do all of the editing remotely. It really only became a little bit of a problem when we got into color correction because it does help to have somebody like right there during that process. Um, But our team worked really great. Um, we did a lot of Zooms. We did a lot of sharing of files via this one website called Frame.io, where we were able to just leave comments like yeah. at any frame. It just worked really, really great. That's awesome. I'm curious, like backing up, I guess, sort of just what led you to want to tell this story? Mm, that's a good question. Um, well, I've had two parallel interests, one in nutrition and one in sustainable farming yep. for ever. So uh, they kind of just all came together right when I decided to launch this project. But my interest in nutrition came because I was really sick as a kid. I was underweight. Nobody knew what was wrong. And I didn't find out until I was 26 that I it was undiagnosed celiac disease hmm. pretty much my whole life. Um, and so I went gluten-free at that time. But it really didn't fix all of my problems. I was still pretty convinced I was diabetic or on the verge of diabetes. I was constantly, you know, needing my gluten-free snacks and granola bars and all of that. And it wasn't until I left the corporate world and started working on the farm where I lived and was selling things like coconut oil and lard and, you know, butter, that I, you know, started getting all these questions from people like, why are you selling coconut oil? Because that's a saturated fat. Isn't saturated fat going to kill you? And I, you know, had read a few books and I was curious to learn more. And so I decided to kind of take a nosedive straight into nutrition and really learn more about it and kind of came to the solution that everything that we've been taught about nutrition is backwards. Right. And so I, I started eating much differently and started, you know, getting rid of all my high carb, low fat, gluten free junk that I had been eating um, and marketing because I, w- I used to do that at, at for Whole Foods Market and started eating just real food, full fat things, uh, a lot more meat and just felt so much better. And so I decided that I wanted to help other people eat this way because I just it was just a complete, you know, my life went from like black and white to color. Like that's how dramatic it was for me. And so I decided to go back to school to become a dietitian, ironically, only so that I could take insurance and really work more in the medical um, field. And so I had to go through that standard Western diet training only to now dispense the opposite information. But, um, but I'm able to see, people for a $30 copay, you know, instead of, you know, so, so that's the nutrition piece. Um, and then the farming started, it was my summer job all through high school and college. I grew up on Eastern Long Island and that, that was, 
you know, a great way to have a summer job where I could be outside. And I just really loved it. And all through uh, college, I was just very interested in environmental things, ended up getting together with somebody also who had shared that same passion. And we weren't quite sure how that would translate into a career. We both had very corporate, um, high-tech jobs during the dot-com boom. He ended up becoming an organic farmer, having grown up in Newton, Massachusetts, like not on a farm at all. And I was the one who pushed him that way because I just, I loved being outside. I knew that this was something that, you know, you can do to, to, to use your body, but also be, you know, outside and improving the environment and saving open space within suburbia. That's another thing that's really great about these small scale CSA farms um, is, you know, we're, we're losing farmland uh, to human development. And so um, to be able to save that within communities and to have an organic farm where kids can visit and that can be part of their life, even if they end up not being a farmer, but just to have that as part of their life, they're much more likely to be an environmentalist when they become adults. And so when I started looking at all of the people out there, this was maybe eight years ago or so, who were promoting a sustainable, healthy diet, they were all talking about these, you know, we must be vegans or vegetarians in order to not only be healthy, but also responsible citizens environmentally and ethically. And from all of my life, you know, I spent 18 years living on a farm, watching how important animals were to the fertility cycle of the vegetables and how, you know, if you really wanted to be a closed loop system, you had to have animals as part of that. Right. Well, just because they're, they're providing the fertilizer for the crops, essentially, right? Yeah. And they're upcycling. I mean, those gigantic zucchini bats, anyone who's ever grown zucchini knows what happens (laughs) when, when, if you don't harvest it the day it's ready. So you can either compost that or you can feed it to a chicken or a pig. Yep. And turn it into protein, right? It's pretty magical. And so that combined with my better understanding of human nutrition and the value of animal protein to humans as omnivores, to, you know, especially food insecure people who need that nutrition. You know, I started realizing that this push towards a global diet where everyone needs to necessarily eat less meat is actually quite discriminatory and unethical. And so I wanted to tell that side of the story because the anti-meat story is really the one dominating the dialogue right now. And, you know, these vegan films are being shown at my son's high school as part of science class, as if this is really science. And so I started writing the book, but I realized halfway through writing the book that a book is only going to reach so many people and a film is really how I'm going to reach many more um, because that's how people are digesting their information these days and nobody even knows what a farm looks like. And so if I can bring the farm to people and the lessons that I've learned, because I I feel like one of my gifts is being able to translate complex science into visuals. And and that comes from my background in in art actually. But um, I I just feel like I'm, I'm really good at doing that. And so I wanted to not only do the book with great graphics in it, but also make this film that really at least could help introduce a little more of a balanced conversation when we're talking about sustainable food systems. Yeah. There's so much in what you just said that like, I want to ask you some filmmaking questions, but first I think I want to just sort of go into those parallel worlds of, of farming and nutrition and just sort of like, I, I feel like both your film brings it up, but also, you know, in some of my other research and stuff, like a lot of what we think of today as as modern nutrition and and modern farming practice it's really a product of kind of world war 2 and and surplus right of like having mm-hmm. these chemicals and and you know having the ability to to store food for long times for troop rations just like all of those pieces sort of coming together just as you're talking about sort of what are what are the nutritional recommendations of the government and things like some of that is just based on what we're growing and what we're incentivizing to be grown, right? Like it's this kind of weird closed loop system. Yeah. I mean, even as far back as when we first started farming, that's 
I mean, we lived in much more egalitarian societies as hunter gatherers. Yep. And once we started farming about 10 to 12,000 years ago, that's when we started having stratifications in class. Mm. You know, you, you can only have richer people when you have poorer people doing the manual labor for them and having food stocks. And that's the only way you can actually have an army yeah. is if you have uh, stable food that you can feed them. Right? right. So if you're just living day to day, hand to mouth, it's a much more equal society. So, you know, then moving forward to World War II, which is when we really saw, you know, well, first it was the Industrial Revolution, but then World War II is when we just saw this massive advances in the ability to produce excess because of nitrogen fertilizers. Yep. And and things like canola oil, which is an industrial lubricant <laughs> that we have now marketed towards humans as a food thing but it's it's there's nothing natural about it at all and so this push to produce more and more and more food to control other countries with our own subsidies i mean there's just so many layers to this um it was really hard to tell this story i'm sure i mean it's hard to talk about it right now i mean (laughs) and even just like you brought up you know sort of the idea like these nutrition bars or you know like whatever it is that you're getting off the shelf that like you know, they may say gluten-free on them or they may say low sodium or low calorie or whatever. And I, I think a lot of people like it, it takes work to decode that, I guess, and to mm-hmm. understand what that means and to realize that that doesn't just because there's a buzzword on it doesn't necessarily mean it's nutritional or healthy. Right. Exactly. And so instead of how people are looking at it today, like what part of our broken system is the most sustainable and maybe we should eat that. Yeah. I'm actually looking backwards at what is the most optimal diet for humans, most nutrient dense diet for humans. What did we evolve to thrive on and how can we produce that in the most sustainable way? So it's a completely different way of looking at it. And that's why with the film and with the book, I sort of started with the nutrition argument because if you take emotion out of it and just look at nutrient density, look at the foods that humans have thrived on for three and a half million years, it's animal sourced foods have always been the most prized, the most nutrient dense and the most valuable to humans. Ironically, we can produce those in a sustainable way, but we're being told by the government, by nutrition professionals, And conveniently, this works out well for food manufacturers because there's the most profit in it, that um, grain-based ultra-processed foods are actually the most sustainable and uh, healthy for us to be eating, which it couldn't be more further than the truth. Yeah. How do you, like, you're you're talking about just going through those nutritional classes and, you know, becoming a a registered nutritionist and, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody else in that classroom sort of getting the same information you are. And you're looking at it critically and saying, you know, okay, I don't really believe this, but but I've got to sit through this to, you know, to get accredited and and be able to take insurance and things. But, Mm -hmm. you know, 80% of the rest of that class probably is going on and, and teaching everybody else that they come in contact with that method. Like, how do you, I guess, how do you get in front of that? How do you, how do you beat that system if it's, if, if there's just so much momentum behind it? Yeah. And it's not 80%, it's 99%. Okay. I mean, I'm really, I was the only one wow. who was like questioning stuff yeah. in the class and sitting in the very front row and sending my professors papers. Right you know, challenging everything they said. And I would, every class I would start thinking, okay, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to sit here. (laughs) I'm just going to answer whatever the multiple choice question is that gets me the right answer because it's emotionally really draining to have to fight back, but I couldn't help it. Right. (laughs) And being an older student, like I was the same age as the professors um, because I didn't go back until I was 37. So um, it it was a huge challenge. And I remember after I passed that RD exam, I was so angry that I just threw out all my notes. I threw out anything I learned in the program and I just never wanted to see it again. I mean, it was really, it was rough. And especially the the college level courses. So they're set by the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So there really aren't any programs out there that are sort of more holistic or something like that, because they're all set by this governing body, which 
is so full of bias. I mean, the new, the position paper on vegetarian and vegan diets is written by ideological vegans and vegetarians. Mm. There's there's no omnivores on, on authors on that paper. Yeah, you know, and they're and they're openly funded by Coca Cola and 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 other ultra processed food companies. So there just couldn't be more conflicts of interest happening within that organization. Luckily, I don't have to be a paying member of it in order to be a dietitian. Right. Um, and as long as I can show evidence for the advice I'm giving, I can do what I like as a private practice dietitian. And I have a lot of success helping people with weight loss and with gut issues. And it's all giving them information that's pretty counter to um, what I learned in the program. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I want to go back to this. I, I want to table this for a minute because I am really fascinated <laughs> in this piece of it. And, and I, I could ask you about it all day. But getting back to sort of the film for a minute and just sort mm-hmm. of like as you were talking about your resume and, you know, background as a nutritionist and a, and a farmer and an artist, I, I didn't hear filmmaker in there. <laughs> like <No. laughs> what what was it that made you think that, you know, I can make a film. Why not? Like this, this seems easy. Well, I did study some filmmaking. Okay. And actually, I wanted to be a set designer. Oh, that cool. was my goal. Actually, yeah. was to be like a set designer for like Sesame Street or yeah. something. Awesome. And so I, but I took a bunch of film courses in college, like critical film courses. And what really inspired me was watching this vegan documentary that came out that I hate even saying the name of because yep. then people are going to go out and watch it. But the guy's a dodo, and he went out and he made this very simple film, cherry-picking information, passing it off as science. And I thought, if he can do it, I totally can do this. <laughs> yeah. And so and I had sort of a roadmap of what the film could look like in my head. Yeah. And I just – I basically just did a crowdfunder, raised enough money to get started, and just decided I was going to basically – do my own mini master's degree in filmmaking as I went along. And so, um, I mean, I, I, I've always appreciated film and I, you know, this is more of an advocacy film than like a character driven, you know, like it would be really cool if that's what this was is an amazing story, but you know, I just had to get the information out there as artistically as I could. And so it's sort of a hybrid really between like a documentary and advocacy film. Yeah. Yeah. And, but there's a, there's a scale to it that I didn't expect going in, or I I guess I wasn't really sure what I was going to see, but like, you get all over the world in this. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot in the States, obviously, you know, Virginia and Indiana and places like that, but Mexico and England and Africa, like it, it's a big movie. It's a big story. Yeah. And I really wanted to get out of the U S because I think we're spoiled here in the U S we kind of think that the whole rest of the world looks like this. We think that, um, you know, when you fly over the U S and you see all those squares and circles on the ground, of crops, you kind of just assume that the rest of the world looks like that. And I think the biggest takeaway that I hope people get from the book and the film is that not all land can be cropped, that there's just so many places in the world where only grazing animals can thrive because yeah. the land is either you know too rocky or too hilly or too brittle or whatever. Um, and so if you were to ma- imagine most of Africa, you know, it, it's, it's just not conducive to flat fertile land that you can just plow up, irrigate, dump a bunch of nitrogen fertilizer on and turn into corn. And not to mention that that's not even the best diet for humans anyway. Right. right? And so um, when you think about um, all these places where it's, you know, grazing animals can actually upcycle food we can't eat on land, we can't crop into nutrient dense food. You think about all the places where women can't own land, but they can own livestock. Mm. Um, And you think about all the places where people are really struggling for nutrients. In America, we have overweight people who are nutrient starved. But in a lot of other places, we have people that just need basic nutrients and they can't go to a CVS or Walgreens to get their B12 and iron tablets. Those people must get their nutrients from livestock. And yet we have a lot of organizations that are, you know, led by wealthy white people who have the privilege to push away nutritious food, telling everybody in the world that they are eating too much meat and they need to stop. Mm. So I see this not only as a, you know, nutrition issue and a environmental issue, but as a social justice issue as well. Yeah, definitely. 
It's interesting too, you know, you talked about sort of the amount of land that's available for grazing. And what I was really struck by too is just sort of the the natural cues that a lot of the farmers you talked to and the ranchers were taking that like when you think about a, a sustainable operation and, you know, sort of using electric fencing in the place of what would have been a wolf like 10,000 mm-hmm. years ago that just sort of kept the animals herded in one section and then moving them from, from area to area so that their manure can kind of, you know, re-fertilize the grass and let that recover. And then they can go back in there and graze, you know, at a later date and just sort of that cycle of it that it's just it's very intuitive. It's organic, I guess. Like it's just how it makes sense. And like when you see like a CAFO or something, you know, these big animal operations, these big feeding operations where there's just, you know, tens of thousands of head of cattle, you know, in this, <laughs> these dirt patches with mud everywhere. And, you know, it, it just, nothing about that makes sense. And you just sort of go, okay, like if I'm looking at this from what makes sense in my brain, what calculates correctly here, I go to the, you know, the grazing side of it over, you know, let's feed you know, a bunch of corn to, to cows on a feedlot. Well, and at the same time, though, a lot of people, because of all this imagery and, and all this, you know, bad welfare practices we've had towards livestock, a lot of people see the horrors in CAFO animal um, production, yep. but they're not seeing those same horrors in monocrop plant production mm, that's and, true. and yeah. how devastating that is for ecosystem function. I mean, in order to make a field of wheat or corn, you have to completely annihilate the ecosystem that was there before. You have to displace or kill all the animals that were there. It requires pesticides and, you know, other crazy chemicals that are destroying insects and things that live in the water where it gets washed into. And so what I hope people get is that they can see that that is also incredibly destructive and we need a whole new system, not just the slightly less worse versions of our current system. No, definitely. It's an interesting point too, just sort of those, like I grew up in Ohio and thinking of like those those Midwestern cornfields and just, you know, driving for miles and miles and seeing nothing but corn or soy or whatever it is. That's a relatively new thing. Like there's, there's a romanticism to kind of, you know, the Midwestern farm, but they didn't look like that, you know, even 50, 60 years ago, right? Like this is all relatively new in these monocultures. Right. And I think a lot of people can relate. There is a romanticism with that. There's this whole like John Deere, Norman Rockwell kind of um, association with miles and miles of corn. But what we're not seeing is, is all the death that happens in that system. Um, And it's interesting, Alan Williams, who's one of the professors that's in the film was telling me um, on a podcast that I did with him about how in his County in Mississippi, there used to be 200 small scale dairy farms Mm -hmm. and vibrant small towns because that's what would support the small towns is the farming that, you know, that the farmers employed people, they kept small businesses going. I mean, it was, that was the center. And now um, today there's not one small scale dairy and all of the small towns are boarded up. They're all taken over by Walmarts and, and big box stores. And, you know, we've seen small town America just completely fail. And, and that's gone hand in hand with, the failure of the small scale farm. Yeah. And I think a lot more people can relate to maybe going back to their hometown and seeing all the stores gone. Yeah. Right. Definitely. And, and, you know, you touch on it in the film too, of sort of that getting into that endless trap of sort of commercial agriculture that, you know, you need more and more sophisticated equipment and, and more and more pesticides or fertilizers or whatever it is. And even now, you know, these, these roundup ready crops and stuff where you can't even save seed, like you need to buy new seed every year that it just becomes this, you know, insurmountable uh, upfront cost to even get in. And then once you're in, you're completely dependent on a commodity market to, uh, you know, your profitability each year. Like you don't have much control over sort of, you know, if you're a small scale farmer, you can say, Mm -hmm. you know what, I know that this community really wants a lot more lettuce. So I'm going to, I'm going to lean into that this year, or I'm going to plant some raspberry bushes or whatever. But like when you're growing corn, you're growing corn and you're selling it for whatever they're buying it at. Exactly, exactly. So that's why, you know, one of the solutions we push for is more regional food systems, smaller scale, more people buying either direct from their farmer or through, you know, regional markets. Because as we've seen from COVID, 
it's extremely insecure to have a food system that's controlled by five people, right? right? Um, we, we had shortages of meat, but there were major sh- problems even with, um, you know, no one to harvest produce because right. of labor. And so I'm surprised that this is held up so strongly by the government because it's a national security issue too. Mm. One of the great things though that came out of COVID was everyone I know who produced particularly meat, but also vegetables um, and sold direct to consumers were completely bought out like yeah. within the first month or two of COVID yeah. seed companies were sold out of seed because so many people wanted to plant their own gardens, um, spending more time at home. And now uh, in the fall, we're seeing that there's not enough canning lids. Yeah. No, <laughs> I've run into that. I've literally driven like 25 miles to a hardware store to get uh, to get canning jars this year because there weren't enough. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping, you know, as people start to work more from home, um, I mean, there's pros and cons to that because that also then, you know, as people flee cities, they're yep. going to be buying up more land that could be used for farming. So we need more policies that are going to be uh, preserving open space for agriculture. We need to make it easier for people to get into agriculture because that's a huge problem too for, for young people just to to get up and running, access to land and capital for that. But I also see more of an appreciation for farmers. And I'm, I'm hoping that farmers end up becoming more like the celebrity chefs that we used to, you know, think we're such celebrity, you know, just magic. Um, But I'm hoping that that gets transposed now to farmers. Well, it's funny. You talk about sort of your own journey into farming. And I feel like that's, that's a pretty common refrain that like over the last, you know, 20, 25 years, there's been sort of this move to a younger generation coming in, you know, for a hundred years, farming was a dying practice and, you know, it was older people retiring and what's going to happen to the farm. And as you say, a lot of them got, you know, sold off and developed. And now all of a sudden it seems like there's this young crop of people and, you know, their twenties, thirties, forties moving onto farms and managing them and, and sort of learning that. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's nice to see that it's encouraging. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Yep. I want to ask just sort of in thinking about like I'm in a perfect agreement with everything you're saying about, you know, shopping more locally and and knowing your farmer and things. But I know like for me, it's a chore sometimes. And I'm in the Boston area, as are you. And, you know, we have these amazing farms very, very close to us. But I know like I'm a member at a CSA at one of them and I get weekly produce there and can go pick and, you know, things like that. But I still supplement some of that CSA with stuff from another organic farm nearby. Uh, I get meat often at a different farm, just depending on sort of what availability is and time of the Mm -hmm. year. And like Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, in the span of a week, I might make four or five trips to three or four different farms. And I'm still not even getting like milk and butter and things like that. Like, you know, there's other things that I'm still having to go to a Whole Foods or a Costco or something to to round it out. And I know a lot of people think I'm crazy for that. Like they'll just go to their local supermarket and get whatever's there and not have any thought of, you know, is it in season? Where was it shipped? You know, is this from Chile or is this from Australia? Like, how do you, how do you fix that piece of it? That just like, I'm in favor of going to, to local producers, but that's like a huge priority for me. And I know for a lot of people it's not. Yeah, I I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting sort of hub and spoke distribution models coming mm. up with local food. I think that, you know, people are going to be able to take advantage of, you know, things like Walmart parking lots and um and, you know, Uber and and things like that. I mean, I could even see, you know, home growers, um maybe someone's got a bumper crop of tomatoes and it goes to a regional hub where then someone can order, you know, tomatoes and that kind of stuff and it gets delivered to their home. So I think we're right at the beginning of this new revolution of how food is going to be purchased and it's really exciting to me. I think we're going to we're going to really see some major changes within the next like 10-15 years. Yeah. There's definitely the demand there for it. And, you know, I hear that my parents are in Missouri and they're kind of surrounded. They're they're in Kansas City, but they're surrounded by, you know, cattle operations. And there's not the farming that is there that's that's crop based is is primarily corn and soy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they get jealous every time they come visit us up here. And they're like, oh, man, like if we had one farm like this and you've got like 10 of them, like I, I just, you know, New England sort of has this this tradition of these small family farms as well, like. Do you see in other parts of the country 
a move towards that? Like, will 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 there be more availability for sort of small scale agriculture in the rest of the country? Yeah, I think we need small scale, but I also think we really need mid scale mm. too. Yeah. Um, because that's the biggest thing in in business in general that's dying, and that's what we need to survive this the most is the mid scale yeah. uh, organizations. Because there's always going to be the boutique small ones that are going to serve the one percent, right? And then there's always going to be the mono, you know, big box discounters that are going to serve the masses. But if we lose the middle guys who can be a lot more nimble and a lot more reactive to the needs of people and wiggle back into that space, that's when we're going to see major changes, I think. Yeah. There's also this issue, I guess, like all of this sort of talking about eating more meat or, you know, local produce or, you know, all of it assumes that people are are, uh, cooking for themselves and preparing Mm -hmm. this food. But a lot of people aren't. And, you know, they're buying the whatever, the lean cuisine or something. It's heavily processed foods. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you think it takes to to move away from that and get people to to cook at home more? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's ultra processed, you know, as a dietitian and someone who studied like the neuroregulation of appetite, there are certain food combinations that light up those reward centers in your brain yeah. that a roasted chicken and steamed broccoli just will never right. do. Right. So we're fighting against these ultra palatable, ultra processed foods that it's really hard to compete against yeah. when you're talking about home cooked food and still people at the same time, we'll think that if they make a brownie out of a box at home, that that's homemade. Right. Right. I add an egg to it. So that's, yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, it, we do need more people cooking from home, but we also need better options for convenience. And I think we need to just meet people where they are. I'm working with a lot of better meat companies that are getting really good meat into food service at, at institutional levels and, and universities, getting them into, uh, I mean, you go into uh, stores today and you can see a lot more gluten-free options, a lot more all-natural options, yep. a lot more meals that are made with grass-fed meat. I mean, I never used to see that and I'm starting to see it more now. So I think, um, you know, it's going to start at the at the higher end level, but then it's going to become a lot more mainstream as well. I, I wonder, too, like there's an economic piece of this that, you know, again, like as I'm sort of going around to these local farms and stuff and I'm paying, you know, eight dollars a dozen for for uh, organic eggs. And then I look at, you know, Costco's got organic eggs that it's, you know, I don't know, five dollars for two dozen or something crazy like that. And if you buy just conventional eggs at the local supermarket. I don't even know. It's probably $1.99, maybe less for a dozen of eggs. Like just that disparity that, again, I, I've chosen to sort of prioritize this and and I understand the value in it. But there's a cost benefit piece to it and there's a privilege piece to it that a lot of people don't have. Like, mm-hmm. how, yeah, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, it's really complex because as a dietitian, I want moms who don't have the privilege to buy grass-fed meat and pasture-raised eggs to just feed their kids the most nutrient-dense foods they can access. And that means feedlot-finished beef and battery eggs because you still are getting iron and B12 and choline that you really can't get from other foods. And it's unfortunate that Twinkies are cheaper than apples in our country, but that's the truth. And honestly, the U.S. is the only place where grain finished beef is cheaper than grass fed beef. Hmm. Um, And that has to do with a lot of the policies that we have happening here. And so there's a lot of layers to this. So I I also think as we have more better farms, we'll have more cheaper meat, right? Because that's just the the way economics works. And so I actually applaud Costco for having organic and, and grass fed meat and things like that, because the goal shouldn't be only patronizing those, you know, idealistic farmers in New England, but it should be like, let's have more grass fed meat, period. Yeah. Yeah. And so if it needs to be, you know, one level of it needs to be kind of mass produced and cheap at Costco, that's still more grass fed meat, right? And so I think we need just to check our privilege a little bit in yeah. some ways and understand that, you know, there, there's a nutritional value to meat 
that, you know, if, if people want to give their kids the best advantage in life, it's to give them the best nutrition as possible when they're growing. And, and that means, you know, sometimes um, maybe not buying, you know, the, the, the most perfect meat, but not letting perfect get in the way of healthy. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Uh, you know, it makes me think, though, too, of like words like uh, like cage free, for example. I'm thinking more of eggs, I guess, than than of meat. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, there are there are terms that it, it goes back to sort of what we were talking about with food marketing, I guess, that they sound really good um, on the package or there's an adjective there. So you say, OK, that's something that's better than the eggs that have no adjective on them. But mm-hmm. like it's still not ideal feels like the wrong word here, but just like it, it's it's slightly better than really bad but it's still pretty (laughs) bad right (laughs) yeah well and actually i mean when you really know what cage-free eggs means yeah it's not great at all they're like in a barn right like just it it, they're attacking each other like the cages actually protect the chickens because when you take highly stressed out birds and just throw them all into a fighting pit yeah it's actually a worse situation than separating them out and keeping stressed out birds away from each other because chickens are cannibalistic and they will attack and eat each other. And so unfortunately, and I've actually spoken, I've had that woman that actually is the one who put a lot of pressure on all these um, egg producers to go cage free and, and, and companies like McDonald's to buy cage free eggs and I asked her, like, how does she feel about what happened there, right? Because yeah. now there's just all these, like, awful, <laughs> stressed-out birds that are getting attacked. And she's like, actually, it was a huge mistake. Wow. So I just think that there's a lot of simplicity in these. It, it's a lot of greenwashing and a lot of people that just don't know anything about food production that are pushing policies when – they need to just stop and go work on a farm for a little bit and observe like how things really work. Yeah. I feel like it's tough. Like I wonder just sort of decoding all the, you know, cage free, free range, grass fed, organic, natural, like there's all these different terms. Some of them that have very legal definitions, some of them that, you know, have no definition at all or, or you know, are very subjective. Like just for the average person, most people don't have any clue where their food comes from or have any sense. And, you know, maybe I guess the answer is probably it's films like yours that help mm-hmm. help illustrate that for them. But just like to even begin the conversation, like it just it's a lot of work. I guess that I keep coming back to that point that like, you know, mm-hmm. I've I've been looking into this for eight or 10 years now and it's been a slow evolution for myself of, you know, starting with choosing Whole Foods over a conventional grocer and then going one step further to a local farm, you know, or a farmer's market, maybe, and then to a local farm, you know, but it's a, it's a slow, steady process. And just, Mm -hmm. it takes a long time. Like, do, do people care enough, I guess, to do that research and, and, you know, figure that out for themselves? I don't know. I think we just need to celebrate wherever someone is in their journey on that and just help them along and not try to, be like the regenerative police right right? and and saying well that's not good because it's not you know my level of food nirvana right and that's where i get back to like if it's costco and it's grass-fed beef that maybe came from uruguay or australia that's that's okay if that's where you're at and then you know if you have the privilege and time and money to uh, invest in a chest freezer and drive out to the Berkshires to go pick up your half a cow that was a milk cow for a while and then became ground meat. And that's, that's what you're doing for your meat. Like that's even better. Right. Yeah. But, but I think we just need to be a lot more, a lot less polarized in our talking about meat and, and, and food in general, and just kind of, be supportive of, of where folks are and also be a lot more understanding of the nutritional value of even feedlot finished beef, because even feedlot finished beef is a nutrient dense food. It's upcycling protein from foods that, that we can't eat. Like, like even those cattle that are finished on a feedlot, you know, they can be treated in a better way. There are feedlots that, that do treat their animals in a better way than other feedlots. And and this is where it gets really like prickly for some of the grass fed beef producers that I talk to, but 
you know, over the whole course of their lifespan, they're really only eating about 10% of their diet from grain. Mm. Um, and I've seen regenerative grazers uh, do amazing work, but then sell to a feedlot because it just worked out better for them economically. Yeah. And so I think we just need to embrace everybody. And, you know, if I can, if I can work with McDonald's to even get 20, 30% of their beef to be grass fed, like that's a win too. And so I think just at the end of the day, knowing that our time here is short and that we just need to do the best we can and that people understand that people generally want to do the best they can is um, a good word, good place to be. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's great. Um, I, I have a couple more questions just about the film and sort of mm-hmm. you, t- you mentioned the crowdfunding piece of it. And that struck me like two things struck me, I guess, looking at the end credits. One was just sort of how short the crew piece of it was that like this was a very kind of bare bones operation it looks like um mm-hmm. but then part two of that is sort of there's a very long scroll of of crowd i mean it looked like two thousand names or something like how many do you have a sense of sort of how many people contributed to help bring this project into fruition yeah it was about six thousand. Oh wow okay yeah <laughs> it just kept going and going and i'm like wow okay that's a lot of people. Yeah, That's awesome. I, I had to fight with them to get them all in there. And I said, no, 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 Thomas and the name in the credits. And so we had to be very creative about that. And I'm sure not everyone will sit through and, and watch the whole credits. But it was really important to me to honor the people that helped me because I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Yeah. And, and yes, our crew was very, very small. Um, I was the producer and director of the film. And a lot of times my camera guy was also the sound guy. A lot of times it was just me and my camera guy, like in England. Yeah. It was just us. That was just the two of us. That's awesome. Um, on the shoot with James Ray Banks. And so I wish that I had had the luxury of, of a larger crew, but at the same time it was, really cool to know that like if you have a good camera and camera guys that are also filmmakers you can actually get a lot done yeah and it's effective Mm -hmm. it's just as effective you know with a small crew like you you told the story and uh it was beautiful and i was on board it's awesome um i want to ask too just uh you know sort of our mutual connection here is through nick offerman and you know Mm -hmm. he narrated the film like i'm curious sort of how how he got involved with the project yeah, um, actually, it was uh, James Rebanks in England. So um, uh, he mentioned that right after we were leaving, Nick Offerman was going to come and stay. And um, to be quite honest, I didn't even know who Nick Offerman was. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell Nick this. Yeah, but he I might know, know now. He might. He might hear this. Who knows? <laughs> um, and. Uh, so anyway, I, I don't watch TV and I, I I didn't know who that was, but I looked it up and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, I think I've seen that guy before. And then, um, James is telling me about him. And then I went home and I watched the Wendell Berry film because James told me about how Nick was, um, one of the producers on look and see, which is a film about Wendell Berry, who is one of my favorite authors ever. And I didn't even know that film existed and I was just so blown away. And I had actually asked Nick to be in the film. I mean, I'm sorry, um, Wendell Berry to be in the film. Yeah. And I had to handwrite him a letter. Uh, this was way in the beginning, and he told me no. But he, mm. you know, knowing that he wasn't even in his own film made me feel a little bit yeah better about it. I didn't take it personally. Anyhow, so uh, so Nick is really good friends with James Rebanks. He was going to be staying with him. We were miss missing Nick by like two days, and then I realized also that Nick had this furniture shop and. I am also a furniture maker. And so when I finally ended up getting in touch with Nick, I was sending him pictures of my furniture too. So um, we, we bonded over that and agriculture. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and uh, it's really great. I mean, he's really the only person in Hollywood that I would have wanted to narrate this because yeah. there's just nobody else who would have been as appropriate and, and such a defender of the project too yeah it's funny like i didn't really know that side of him like my connection with him is also through woodworking but i had him on this show uh, early on he was like episode eight or something and we ended up just sort of going into that territory about like you know sustainable agriculture and just sort of how important that was to both of us and i mean it's probably 20 minutes of the 45 minutes that we talked and uh, it was just like wow that's a great fit and then you know i saw he posted about your film maybe a month later, it was just like, oh, yeah, like that. He, of course, he's the right person for that. That's just totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
the the last piece is sort of that like what struck me and and I feel like it's a great place to end it. Um, you know, Joel Salatin was in the film as well, and you know he's sort of been at the front of of a lot of this you know sustainable meat production for a long time. And I loved his line that just you know as humans we had the capacity to hurt the land, but we also have the capacity to heal the land. And like I just I love that sentiment. That just it it, it just it reminds me of sort of the role that we all play in this, and just sort of you know, we can use our powers for really bad things or for really good things, I guess. And yeah, it just, it makes me mm-hmm. happy that, you know, that people like you are, are using it for good, I guess, and, and getting that word out there. Yeah. And that was a, that was a theme too, when we visited England with James Rebanks, when I was driving around the Lake District, I mean, it was generally pretty overgrazed and, yeah. and decimated by sheep. And, you know, then when we were driving around in Mexico, the Chihuahuan Desert was again, completely destroyed. And that yeah. was us doing that. And here we have Alejandro, you know, regenerating, you know, he and his, his network regenerating a million acres of desert back into grasslands just yeah. with cattle, but it's us helping that along. And the truth is if we just left it to nature, it actually wouldn't necessarily ha- go back um, as quickly as if we helped it along. Yeah. And so we know enough to be able to, fix all the problems that we that we created all right diana rogers there i like that i hope you guys liked it it's stuff that i've been reading on for many many years and uh, i'm excited that diana's given another perspective to this story and i like talking to her about it so i hope you guys kept up and i hope you enjoyed it the film sacred cow and the book sacred cow are available by going to sacredcow.info info you can uh, learn all about those projects there. And Diana also hosts the Sustainable Dish podcast, which is a really good listen if you want to learn more about these issues and more about Diana's work. All right. On Thursday, I am going to be talking to Scott Cook. He is a uh, folk singer out of Canada. He lives in Edmonton, Alberta. And he has a really interesting story because he spent more than a decade touring around the world and uh, you know, sometimes living out of a van but traveling the world playing music. And obviously with COVID, all the travel has been shut down. Live performances have been shut down. So he's had a chance to sort of refocus a lot of his energies and think some big thoughts about life. He's also somebody that struggled with alcoholism and uh, had a near-death experience, really, that helped him reframe life as well. So interesting, deep conversation coming up on Thursday with musician Scott Cook. I hope you check that out. Remember to hit subscribe so you'll be one of the first ones to get the shows in your feed. And I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. So shoot me a message. Let me know what you guys are thinking about the show. I will talk to you on Thursday. Stay safe. Register to vote. Mail in your ballot. Let's do this.